Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. Getting to the starting point of your life by Soen Shaku Zenji. Quote, There is something in you that insists you listen intently to the Dharma. This is the seeking mind that has emptied itself of everything else. And in that moment, it is like that of a person dying of thirst who is desperately in need of something to drink right now. End quote. These are the words the Buddha spoke to his disciples. When the will arises in you to listen intently to the way, first of all, empty your mind of everything. Empty your mind of the language of mutual transactions. Throw open the doors to your mind completely and clean it out pristinely until there is not a speck of worry. When that mind seeking the way accelerates to critical mass prior to breaking through, it is the state of mind of a person dying of thirst. When you are really thirsty, you are not particularly choosy about the kind of water that is set before you. The people of our country today are all receiving splendid education as well as basic instructions in various other forms of culture but it seems they have forgotten the starting point of their lives. It is as if they have forgotten everything that pertains to their own existence. When the one and only thing you seek is the way, It is with the state of mind I have described above. It is only with the mind that flat out seeks the way that you can at last cross the threshold of spiritual awakening. Good afternoon. It's really so wonderful to be here again with you and to be in this beautifully restored zendo with each tiny piece of this floor, lovingly sanded down, glued, and placed. How many were there? 22,000 pieces? Two. 22,060 pieces. And many of you participated in this very taxing but satisfying work. And 
Today we are commemorating Soen Shaku, whose calligraphy is hanging there. His calligraphy of Bodhidharma, whose day we commemorate on or close to October 5th. And this calligraphy came to us. Do you know, Choren? I was hoping you did, because I can't remember. Anyway, it was a gift, and we're very fortunate to be able to sit here. I believe Mickey Namura gave it to us in honor of our 50th anniversary. Mm -hmm. So... Today we heard this quote from the Buddha. There is something in you that insists. Something in you that brought you here. Something in you that occasioned a deep yearning in you from many years ago. Is there anyone here who has not felt this? If so, leave immediately. You know, we might say, what brought you to session? What brought you to practice? And I do think that for many of us, there was something calling. And we couldn't say what it was. Some deep question. Maybe some circumstances that brought pain, despair, that caused this listening. What? Why? Asking. And this seeking mind is very often sharpened by situations of extremity in our lives. You know the saying, necessity is the mother of invention. And I often think, Desperation is the mother of inspiration. How many of you have been desperate? Some don't want to say so. Maybe it's embarrassing. You want everyone to feel, well, you come here, you're already all set well-versed in the teachings of the Buddha and doing what you need to do in your life, no problem. Hmm? Maybe. Maybe not. For myself, I just felt this very, very strongly. Not knowing what it was, not knowing its name. Dayo Kokushi's poem on Zen expresses this. There is a reality even prior to heaven and earth. 
Indeed, it has no form, much less a name. And so, not even knowing what we're doing, we may find ourselves sitting down and just entering into deep listening, emptying the mind of everything, all those concerns and worries, all the confusion and fear and just sitting down, maybe under a tree and tears flowing and then feeling this little bubble of misery just disappearing. So if we have fortunate karma, we find out about this practice. And then the starting point occurs. This is what each of us has experienced in one way or another. And to quite a few people of the past who are important in our investigation of Soen Shaku Zenji, there's a someone who was a laywoman practicing at Engakuji, where Soen Shaku trained and then became abbot. And her name was Hiratsuka Raicho. And she had great questioning, great doubt, She had read a lot in Buddhism and in Christian theology. And she began practicing under Tetto Sokatsu and received the koan, show me your original face before your parents were born. Working on this diligently, the following year, she reported, during a session, she suddenly felt, I will quote, enormous teardrops falling onto my knees while reciting what we just recited, the song of Zazen by Hakuin Zenji. And she said, because she wasn't feeling in any emotional state of sadness, she said this was probably an explosion of the life That was in me. Her first Kensho was acknowledged by her teacher in the summer of 1906. And she received the Buddhist name Ekun. Then her teacher, Sohokatsu, said, He was going to spread the Dharma in the United States with a group of disciples. And this, it is said here in this little bit of history, 
is the famous trip that's, that took Soukatsu to San Francisco in September 1906, accompanied by Zuigan Soseki Goto and Soshin Shigetsu Sasaki Roshi and his first wife. So, 1906. This is a very important time for Buddhism, for Zen Buddhism in America. And I will read something from Eloquent Silence uh, about this period. It seems that there was someone who was practicing Zen here in America named Ida Russell. And Yogan Senzaki says, a woman, this woman, was the first person to open her inner eye in studying Zen. Ida Russell, married to Alexander Russell. She went to Japan and studied under my master, Soen Shaku. Wow. Soen Shaku. Some background on him I really should mention, even though many of you know his life well from reading about him. He was brilliant as a young boy and studied the Chinese literature and then at the age of 15 went to Keninji in uh, Kamakura. That was the first Zen monastery in Japan, founded by Myoan Esai Zenji in the 14th century. And at that temple, he was inji to Shungai Roshi, who passed away quite young in his 50s. And then Soen Shaku went to Engakuji, very close by also in Kamakura, and began his discipleship with the very well-known Kosen Imakita Roshi. He received Inca at the age of 25. How many of you here are 25? Anybody? 25? How old are you, Eric? 26. 26? You just missed it. Okay. And then he also began studying Western philosophy and literature and politics. And so he was really this kind of um, shining example of what um, the best of Japanese monastic training could be. Then what happened was he had a crisis of faith. And he started feeling that he wasn't sure he wanted to really continue. And there was a, a sense in which he felt that he really needed to do something else, that he needed to find some other way to continue. And he had persevered through all the challenges of monastic teaching and he had mastered all the forms, and he was due to be elevated in the establishment, and he knew that, and he just couldn't. So he wasn't even sure he would continue as a monk. And his teacher, who of course was very concerned, Kosen Makita Roshi, decided he'd better speak with someone else and maybe get some uh, insight into handling this brilliant yet somewhat uh, uh, troubled young monk. And he spoke with Fukuzawa Roshi, who suggested, why not send this monk to Ceylon, at the time, that was the name for Sri Lanka. Then perhaps he would 
come back to his senses, as it were, and renew his uh, determination as a monk. Well, indeed, that's what happened. Soen Shaku sailed for Ceylon and began practicing with Theravada monks. This was 1887. He learned Pali and he wrote to his teacher about the purity of the practice that he experienced there. Very simple, just one robe, one bowl. And he said, when I think of Japanese Buddhists, both priests and adherents, I must say that I feel ashamed. All that pomp and circumstance was somehow he just couldn't re-embrace it. And so he really lived the Theravada monastic life, which he said was a real beggar's life, always walking with a bowl and begging for sustenance and sleeping outside on the grass under a tree. And he really decided, I'm going to stay here for at least three years. And that's when his teacher decided, I don't think so. You better get back here. And indeed, he was summoned back in 1890 by his teacher. And in 1892, Imakita Roshi passed away. So here he is at the age of 33, having somewhat grudgingly returned to the Japanese establishment, and he is now installed as the abbot of Engakuji, one of the headquarters of Rinzai Zen. You can't get more establishment than that. And so that was in 1892. What happened the next year? The next year, he traveled again. But instead, instead of going to Sri Lanka, he came to America. For the World Parliament of Religions, as a uh, very important, the head of a very important monastery, he was invited to give a talk to represent all of Japanese Zen at this Parliament of Religions. And so he became the first Zen priest to teach in this country. You know, we speak of Bodhidharma as the first ancestor of Zen in China. Soen Shaku was the first Zen ancestor in this country. And the question, why did Bodhidharma come from the West, is, of course, well-known and appears in so many koans. Why did Bodhidharma come from the West? What was his intention? To this, Rinzai said, if he had had any intention, <clears throat> he couldn't even have saved himself. And it becomes a crucial question for us. Why did Soenshaku come from the East? We have Bodhidharma coming from the West India. Why did Soen Shaku come from the East? What was his intention? After being here before the World Parliament of Religions, he returned at the invitation of Ida Russell, 
That was in... <clears throat> 1905. And there's a talk that uh, Yogen Senzaki's dear friend, Soe Nakagawa Roshi, gave when he first came to this country. And at that talk, he mentioned Soen Shaku, that he had come back to America in 1905 and stayed for about nine months in San Francisco. And he said, one day he was asked to give a talk for a Japanese gathering. Audience had heard of his reputation and everyone was very eager to hear the profundity of his lecture. He began as follows. I have studied Buddhism for more than 40 years and have preached the teaching here and there. But I really could not understand it until very recently. Now I understand that after all, I do not understand anything. His audience was dismayed. Some even laughed at him. Preparing for this talk about Soen Shaku, I came upon an essay that he wrote after that second trip to the West. And I've already talked with you a bit about Ida Russell becoming the first American Zen student. And I had always wondered, how was it? Had she gone to that World Parliament of Religions? Had she heard his 1893 address on the law of causation? But I came upon this essay, and it was translated by D.T. Suzuki, and then, of course, D.T. Suzuki, at the age of 23, was translating for Soen Shaku at the World Parliament of Religions and continued to do so on the second trip. And then it was translated again by Wayne Yokoyama, in the Eastern Buddhist in 1993, and that's what I will read some excerpts from. It's called Reflections on an American Journey. So I want to ask again, why did Soen Shaku come from the East? He says, what motivated me to go to America to attend the Chicago World's Parliament of Religions. Perhaps it can be laid down to what Buddhism calls spiritual bonding, innen, karmic affinity. When I asked you earlier, what brings you here? What brings you to this practice? Isn't that it? something you can't really say any kind of logical response to, but that you feel something inside calls me to this. And that's what he said. This innen, this karmic affinity. And then he said, some 13 or 14 years later, 1905 to 1906, I ended up going to America a second time because a certain American lady had earlier paid me a call when I was still at Ngaguji Temple, Kamakura. And this was in 1902. The plot thickens. So, uh, this was Mrs. Alexander Russell, one of a party of four. 
Soon after disembarking at Yokohama, she asked their guide whether he knew of someone who was doing seated meditation in Japan. Well, he could have gone, he could have told them to go anywhere, right? Everybody was doing Zazen in Japan at any temple in 1902. But there was good reason for her inquiry, Soenshaku writes. Even before Mrs. Russell and her group arrived at Angakuji, they had already been sitting in meditation for seven or eight years. Having nothing to do with the World Parliament of Religions. This has everything to do with there is something in you that insists you listen intently to the Dharma. Each of them, he writes, in response to a need arising from within themselves, felt they had to sit in meditation. Through talking with the Russell group and observing their present circumstances, I gradually began to get a picture of the forces that gave rise to their way of thinking. Now he's writing at some point in the early 1900s, and he says here, we are presently living in a civilized world but there is no telling what will happen to it in the future. Some regard membership in this advanced civilization of ours a most wonderful thing. On the other hand, to be a part of it means we must struggle frantically with one another, scholar competing against scholar, intellect pitted against intellect, when we observe society at various, various levels, we see poor and rich, illiterate and learned, landowner and tenant, employer and employee, constantly bickering with one another over claims of authority and duty. Ultimately, there is no quarter to which we can turn in this world ruled by struggle. We hound one another. In short, our whole purpose in life is sewn up in the pursuit of success while reaping a profit. Otherwise, we do not feel satisfied. Pursuing that goal that ever eludes us, people end up perennially chasing one thing after another and suffering from it as a result. At length, they wind up in a state of delusion, stumbling about from one darkened realm to the next. Mrs. Russell and her group were not the only ones who have awakened religious sentiments. Such feelings no doubt arise in all of us out of a concern to achieve the greatest good. But just as there are favorable and unfavorable conditions for the practice of the spiritual life, the motives that bring a person to enter the path are also of different kinds. Though the belief in a universal spirit is an ancient one holding little practical significance for us now, Ultimately, I think it is this belief that initially motivated the Russell group to journey to Japan. And then he tells that Ida Russell was a college graduate from a rather wealthy family, and yet, in one way or another, he says, she had been drawn into the world of competition, an experience 
that left her disillusioned and unable to find peace of mind. And he says, she was weary from the mad pursuit of those caught up in the struggle to survive and was seeking a place where one's heart could find refuge. So, thus motivated, she and another group of people who met with her began sitting in meditation. And in speaking with them, he learned that there were three points they bore in mind. First, purity. Next, quietude. And the third, sympathy. These ideas, which they came up with by themselves, are basic sentiments that all people are originally endowed with, he says. By what means can we go through life quietly and purely to nurture a heart moved by the mystery of life? This was the question they came to ask themselves. And this is, after all, the question that we, too, ask ourselves, particularly in this time of such frantic running after pursuits of various kinds and the extraordinarily divided and divisive an antagonistic society that we are living in today. Now, Soen Shaku, as a Japanese Zen priest, was quite mystified by the fact that they had come to this on their own. He said, the value of seated meditation has been inculcated in us from the time we were children, and we tend to take it for granted. But for those who had never received a word of instruction, we must recognize how remarkable it was that they, they arrived at these matters all by themselves. The state of mind of quiet and purity is the feeling that arises when mind and body become one. So disembarking at Yokohama, Mrs. Russell and her friends asked for information on where to sit. Well, it turned out that this guide was someone who had already been to Engakuji and had listened to Soen Shaku's Teisho. So he said, there is a place nearby in Kamakura where they have a program open to both monks and laypersons alike. And I remember back in 2003, when my friend Kaz Tanahashi and I took a group of students on a Hakuin pilgrimage, we went to Kamakura and we asked, is there a chance that there might be a sitting that we could attend, even though we are a group of mostly lay people? And we were told, yes, it's such and such a time on such and such a day, you can go to right at Engakuji, there is a gathering of lay people, and you can join them. It starts at, I think it was 5.30. So we took the train, got there, and looked around. The place was absolutely desolate, deserted, no one around. We had no way of knowing what building this Sazenkar was going to be taking place in. So after a while, we saw someone and 
they looked at us and pointed. And we walked over, and sure enough, Zazen was just about to start. So there they were at Engakuji. And Mrs. Russell had said, yes, you must take us there directly. And she said to Soenchaku, when they met, give us permission to practice alongside the other monks. Needless to say, he writes, our languages, customs, and habits, our mental outlooks and sense of etiquette were different. In short, to all appearances, everything was different from one end of the spectrum to the other. To be a Zen monk, you have to dig potatoes, sweep and scrub floors, cut firewood, even haul manure. Just seeing the chores awaiting them and thinking it beneath them to perform, they might reach the wrong conclusion that the Zen life had nothing to offer them. So thinking, I strongly expressed my refusal. But the more I refused, the more they implored me for permission, until I had no choice but to grant their wish. The reason I did so is because from the time I was a child, I remembered being taught the Buddha's words, the triple world is where we are. All living beings therein are our children. All this world of ours, our domain, all the people who fill this world, all its plants and animals are what the Buddha Dharma refers to as living beings. All these living beings are our children. We all chant every day, however innumerable all beings are. I vow to save them all. But Sawun Shaku writes, it's repeated so often that we say it without really understanding what it means. After I had turned down the request of these travelers, I had feelings of misgiving. So if they wished to practice alongside the others, I decided I would show them the works from here to the furthest corner of the outhouse. And if they were still earnest, then they could stay on as one of us. And he assumed that they might stay for about a week. As I observed the Russell group, who had practiced on their own in America for seven or eight years, I was surprised to find that the state of mind they attained closely approximated our own. Our seated meditation method and the kind of practice they had devised by themselves were close. Further, I was extremely pleased to discover that we had become good friends. We all started applying ourselves assiduously to help one another. We opened our hearts to one another and could talk about anything, frankly. So then he began telling them certain points. He said, this is what you must do while sitting. You must bow down reverentially when we do prostrations like this. 
when the morning Teisho is being given, you too must sit in attention like this. When we are reciting sutras, you must feel as if you too are reciting the text along with us. Of course, there were no Rumaji, there were no uh, letters in the English alphabet that they could follow along with the way you do, right? Namu karatano. No, nothing. But their intention had to be reciting the text along with us. I had them do just as we were doing. And they were most grateful for my instructions. To his amazement, a week passed. Several more weeks passed. From October of that year until April of the next. None of them ever showed the slightest sign of weariness. And they went about their chores with a smile on their faces as if they were taking a leisurely stroll around the world. And then Mrs. Russell, on behalf of the group, told me, this has been a most wonderful experience for us. It is a shame we cannot share it with others. So, when your circumstances allow, you must come to visit us in our country. And that time came, 1905. Son Shaku resigned as abbot of Engakuji and became, as he says, an unsui, an ordinary monk, once again. And he says, I went to pay a call on my friends in America. He says, I made no bones about imposing on the Russell household who welcomed me as if I were one of the family. And he could manage a little bit of spoken English, but really not fluently. So, of course, D.T. Suzuki accompanied him, and the young monk stayed with him at the Russell household. And the talks that he gave after uh, the year that they spent in America, were published as Sermons of a Buddhist Abbot, which publishers felt perhaps wouldn't sell very well, so another edition came out called Zen for Americans, but basically the same book. It was published in uh, 1906. Then, after being with the Russells for nine months, he was given a donation because he wanted very much to do some traveling and had basically nothing as an unsui. And so they gave Soinchaku something like $5,000, which at the time in... 1905, 1906, was an extraordinary amount of money. And because of that, he was able to continue traveling in America. He went to the East Coast and spoke with various important people and was introduced to President Roosevelt and gave talks up and down the East Coast. And then... He was able to really continue his travels because of that. Uh, he said, after meeting with President Roosevelt, to work for justice and the common good, no less to serve the state 
as a highly constructive attitude, but to bring it into action with a flourish requires the readiness to sacrifice oneself. And I think for those of us who care profoundly about the state of the world in 2019, it's very important for us to keep this in mind, to be able to come from this deep practice and have this attitude of not only wanting to work for justice and the common good, but to be willing to sacrifice our own comforts, our own views and opinions, and to really have this come into action, this must center itself around what Soen Shaku called abandoning the small self so as to serve the greater cause. After all, we have any number of examples of people who work from that small self, that opinionated mind, and simply create more chaos and leave things worse than they were before. So in Shaku makes this point, self-sacrifice from a Buddhist point of view is gratitude. And gratitude is another word for compassion. The words are different, but the import is the same. So he spent his time on the East Coast for about a month, gave lectures on Buddhism at Columbia University, and then, although his health was not so good, decided he would continue And from there, he went back to where he had been years ago as a monk practicing in Sri Lanka. And he then went on to uh, make a tour of sites uh, important to Buddhism in India. always feeling so blessed by having met Mrs. Russell and by her great generosity. She passed away shortly after. And as stipulated in her will, her ashes were placed in the care of Soen Shaku a person whom she held in greatest trust and respect, who had them interred at Tolkeji Temple in Kamakura, where Soen Shaku lived in retirement. And that little note was by D.T. Suzuki. So I was very happy to come upon this essay and realize that there was a lot more that we could learn about Soen Shaku's trip here to the West in 1905 and 1906, and the connection that he made with Ida Russell, who had already begun her practice, not knowing anything about the formal aspects of Buddhism, but somehow from deep within herself, having this will arise to listen intently to the way, 
and knowing intuitively to empty her mind of the language of mutual transactions, to throw open the doors to her mind completely and clean it out pristinely until there is not a speck of worry, as Soen Chaku put it. And that is exactly what we are doing in Seshing. Cleaning it out pristinely. Do you note a speck of worry from time to time? It's important to note it and then clean again. How do we clean it out pristinely? Hmm? Not so easy. Just let it go. We can't think, okay, I'm going to let it go. Right? What do we do? Go back to counting. Hmm? Go back to counting or Returning to the breath. Whether we are counting or exhaling, we have to do it with the body. We can't think our way through around, right? If you think your way through around when you're boxing, what happens? Yeah, you end up, maybe you black out, right? Completely. What's that called? Knockout. Yeah, yeah. So, with that mind seeking the way, accelerating to critical mass, this is important. We do this again and again. We don't get caught up in the highways and byways of the intellectual discourse going on in the mind. We cut through immediately, more immediately, now. And then there is this state of mind like a person dying of thirst. In other words, really in an emergency, really at a point of extremity. We cannot do this practice in a casual way. We cannot just say, well, I think I'll enjoy some peace and quiet. This may have been the motivation of Ida Russell at first, but the more she did this, the more she was willing and taking up self-sacrifice, going to live as the monks did at Engakuji without thinking of herself as separate as a woman of some means from America. But just, okay, clean the latrine. Yes, I will. Smiling. This very important attitude we must have for our sasen. Be really thirsty. And if they set in front of you a cup of New York City water or a bottle of the finest, whatever nowadays they have, huh? some bottled thing, they pay $5 for two ounces. Whatever it is, you're so thirsty. Oh, even muddy water, wonderful. Thank you so much, this gratitude is absolutely the essential part of our practice, to come to this naturally. Not because someone says, well, you should be grateful. What happens when someone says that to you? Resentment. Resentment. Ah, grateful for what? Yeah, right. I want a different water. So even at that time, Soen Shaku said, everyone is so fortunate, receiving splendid education. Mm, not so much these days, but anyway, very fortunate to be able to go to school at all, right? And basic instruction in other forms of culture. But it seems as though they have forgotten. What about their own existence? Why aren't we here? What is the reason for our own coming from east and west, north and south, coming to this very place? It is only, so when Chaku says, 
with the mind that flat out seeks the way that we can at last cross the threshold of spiritual awakening. So we have tonight, we have tomorrow, flat out. This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you for listening.